Bless the Lord. Indeed, we thank God for his grace and mercy uh, in that we are able to exalt him. In fact, we are um, echoing here in the earth what is an ongoing experience in heaven. And uh, if you would, uh, get your Bibles, please, and, uh, and reach for the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 5 today. Um, we in chapter 5, that's where we um, are going to start off. And my prayer is that you are prayerfully reading through the book of Hebrews as I have instructed you to do and if you have not done so I encourage you to do so so that um, you may become compliant so we in chapter 5 and we're going to read 10 verses today in the 5th chapter of Hebrews chapter 5 as I say Hebrews chapter 5, um, and today we're dealing with the qualifications of Jesus as a high priest, the qualifications of Jesus as a high priest. Uh, this is a very important topic um, because we have read in the scriptures so far that he is a high priest, but we need to determine from Scripture if he qualifies for this function. So if you found Hebrews chapter 5, I'm going to start reading from verse 1, and I'm reading 10 verses, as I've said earlier, uh, of this particular uh, chapter. Um, it begins as follows. For every high priest being taken from among men, is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can bear greatly uh, with the ignorant and erring, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity, and by reason thereof is bound, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh the honor unto himself, but when he is called of God, even as was Aaron. So Christ also glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that spake unto him, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. He, as he said also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, having offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death. And having been heard 
for his godly fear, though he was a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became unto all them that obey him the author of eternal salvation, named of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We bless the Lord and we bless the reading of the word of God. Now, this is a recurring theme in this epistle, that Jesus is our high priest. In chapter 2, we observe that he is a merciful and faithful high priest. In chapter 3, we learn that this high, he's the high priest of our confession. It's so important that we be reminded of this. He's the high priest of our confession. And then in chapter 4, we learn that he is a great high priest who have passed through the heavens. Bear in mind, no high priest has ever done that, passed through the heavens. In that same chapter, we learn that he is a high priest who sympathize with our weaknesses. This is an incredible thing to note, that even though he is God, he's able to sympathize with the weaknesses of those who come to him. Now, this is in keeping with the overall purpose of the epistle. What is that purpose? It's to show the superiority of Jesus and this new covenant. <coughs> Excuse me. Thus far we've learned in chapter 1 that he's superior to the prophets. Think of that for a moment. Men like Elijah, Isaiah, who was able to, through the Spirit of Christ, accurately prophesy the Messiah and his sufferings. Men like Jeremiah, who was able to lead the nation in times of, 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 uh, of their apostasy and times of that they were carried away into captivity. He is greater than these prophets. And then we've learned that he's greater than angels because, <coughs> bear in mind how important angels uh, are in, the, in Judaism and especially in the giving of law, the law to Moses. And then later on, we learn that Jesus Christ is greater than Moses. And that is a tremendous thing when you learn about how important Moses was to the nation of Israel. Even to this day, when you visit a synagogue, you will find that there is a seat called the Seat of Moses. This is the place where the rabbi positions himself when he begins to teach the word in the synagogue because he assumes almost as it were the mantle of Moses to teach the ways of God. Now, as we come into chapter 5, it's natural, therefore, to look at a comparison of Jesus with Aaron, Aaron being the high priest. And so it's right here that we begin to look at this comparison with Jesus as a high priest. Now, 
this whole idea of, of the comparison between um, Jesus and Aaron will only really play out in chapter 7 uh, when we see the detailed comparison. But for now, we will look at two aspects. Firstly, we look at the qualities that is required for a high priest. And secondly, we will establish that Jesus uh, does in fact qualify as a high priest. We've seen this in the passage we've read now in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 to 10. But for us who are non-Jewish followers of Christ, none of us practice Judaism to my knowledge. And so we are not um, uh, accustomed to the understanding of, of really the value of high priest. And so this portion of scripture is very enlightening uh, and it will increase our appreciation of Jesus as high priest. Firstly, let's look at the qualities required um, in the high priest. This is in verses 1 to 4. Let me read that again just to help you uh, get <coughs> an overview because the 10 verses I read earlier um, is rather lengthy. I will now read it in the next uh, uh, portions uh, in part and then unpack those parts as I read. Verse 1 to 4, For every high priest being taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can bear greatly with the ignorant and erring, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity, and by reason thereof is bound, as for the people, as also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh the honor unto himself, but when he is called of God, even as was Aaron. So fundamentally then, the qualities required as a high priest, firstly, is divine appointment, God must appoint you, and secondly, human sympathy, or as I said last week, the word empathy really uh, explains more in detail um, what is meant here. So let's look at divine appointment, because the work of high priest involves things pertaining to God. In other words, these are, has to do with both the offering of gifts and sacrifices for sins. Two things. Firstly, it involves things pertaining to God, and then he must bring gifts and sacrifices for sins. So God is the only one who can rightfully select a high priest because this person is to minister unto God. In other words, God gets to choose who ministers unto him. If you read the Old Testament, you will come across uh, a passage of Scripture that speaks of Zadok priest. Zadok priest were allowed to minister unto God, but then there were a category of priests who were only allowed to minister unto people. God would not allow them to come near unto him because of their particular lifestyle. But the high priest was someone who was selected to minister unto God. And this is important. 
that we make that distinction. If you read in Exodus 28, you will see there the instructions that God gives Moses in terms of Aaron. From verse 1 he says, And bring thou near unto thee Aaron thy brother, and his sons with him, from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, Elithmah, Aaron's sons, that thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt speak unto all of the wise-hearted whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments, and to sanctify him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. So in this passage you see with the installation or the selection and installation of Aaron as high priest, how God instructed Moses to choose Aaron and then those who have the spirit of wisdom to make garments for him. And, and the Lord says, for glory and beauty. This is important to note that God is interested in glory and in beauty. And so when Aaron stood before God, he was covered in glory and beauty, and when he stood before the people, he represented the glory and the beauty of God. So here, the point is that Aaron was selected by God to minister unto him. Of course, then his sons, you know, Naab, Abihu, Eliezer, Ithamar, God is already positioning the next generation that would work with Aaron. In fact, here you see, and you would notice Remember, it's Nadab and Abihu who felt that they could step forward and do the work of a high priest prematurely, and you know that they died um, in the process. Now, let's come back to the passage that we read earlier. The second thing that we're dealing with here is human sympathy. A high priest is selected from among men. That's so important because this helps them to be in the spirit of compassion. They themselves being men, having received grace from God, having received mercy from God, having made sacrifices for their own sins, are now dealing with the sins of the people. And then it says this remarkable thing, towards those who are ignorant and going astray. Now we're talking about those for whom the high priests are making sacrifices. Those who are ignorant, in other words, those who do not know the ways of God, the laws of God, and those who are going astray, a different category. These are individuals who know the laws of God, but they are going astray. They are individuals who are, who are not ignorant, but they are presumptuous. They are in rebellion. They are, in fact, sinning, understanding that they are um, sinning against God. So sacrifices were offered on behalf of the sins of the ignorant, but not on sins of presumption. It's interesting, the high priest was not giving instructions to make any sacrifice for sins of rebellion, only sins of ignorance. And then it goes on to say, for he himself is often beset by weakness. And this is the part here 
where the high priest understood his own weaknesses, understood his own frailty, so that he would be able to, to be able to stand in the gap for his brethren and with empathy uh, and, with, and with absolute um, desire to, for them to know God, he would make sacrifice for them. This also explains why the high priest in the Old Testament offered sacrifices for their own sins as well as for the sins of the people. This is so important because they themselves, having received grace from God, are now able to function and fulfill that ministry of standing between God and the people. So thus the high priest would need to be well acquainted with the human condition. In other words, the struggle against temptation. Temptation to sin, temptation to gravitate away from God, the ways of God, the laws of God, the instructions of God. And so uh, he would therefore be able to stand in the gap and bring them in. Now, when you look at the scriptures, and we are busy making a comparison to look at Jesus in terms of his fitness to serve as high priest. But when you look at the scripture in detail, you would see that the parallel between the Old Testament uh, um, high priest and Jesus does not hold true in every minute detail. Now, we will see this when we get to chapter 7 of Hebrews, but let me read these two verses right here in, in verses 26 and 27. It says, for such a high priest became us holy, guileless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needed not daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. So this sinless lifestyle of Jesus sets him apart from the Old Testament priest. But in the most fundamental ways, he has the qualities of a high priest. So Jesus didn't have to make sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people for he had no sin. He never committed any sin. He was sinless. And therefore, as the spotless lamb of God, he was able to sacrifice his own body so that we may be redeemed. Now, in making our comparison, let's consider Jesus' qualifications as high priest. We're back in chapter 5, as we started earlier, but now I want to read from verse 5 to verse 8. So Christ also glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that spake unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And he said also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, having offered up prayers 
and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and having been heard for his godly fear, though he was a son, yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest. Instead, just as much as Jesus was declared to be a son, we see that, remember when we spoke about sonship, we talked about him as a son in Psalm 2 verse 7, where he said, Thou art my son. And he was also declared to be a priest forever in Psalm 110, after the order of Melchizedek. We'll study this in greater detail when we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews. It's easy to see why the priesthood of Jesus was difficult for the early Jewish Christians to grasp. Jesus was not from the lineage of Aaron. Remember, it was Aaron as high priest, his lineage, who would serve as high priest. Jesus was not from the lineage of Aaron. Jesus neither claimed nor practiced special ministry in the temple. He confronted the religious structure instead of joining it. And in Jesus' day, the priesthood became a corrupt institution. In fact, to become the high priest was re required politicking uh, of corrupt leaders. But right in Hebrews 5, 5, it says, Today I have begotten you. This portion of scripture refers to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. At that time, he fully assumed his role as high priest, having been perfected. In other words, the Father raised him from the dead. You see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, that God raised him from the dead, and that he then assumed that position as high priest on the Father's right hand. And his resurrection demonstrated that he was not a priest like Aaron, because none of the priesthood of Aaron ever served as a priest forever, nor were any of them raised from the dead in the past. He is a priest forever. And this is an important contrast, because Jesus' priesthood, like Melchizedek, is an unending priesthood. As I said earlier, no high priest who descended from Aaron ever had a perpetual priesthood. When you deal with when we deal with chapter 7, we'll become more fully uh, aware as we develop the theme of the high priestly function of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. Now in verses 7 and 8, it speaks of the sympathetic because of his own sufferings. The high priest being sympathetic because of his own sufferings. It says, when he has offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears. The agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane proved that he struggled with the difficulty of obedience, yet he obeyed perfectly. I want to 
develop this thought uh, here that he struggled with the difficulty of obedience, yet he obeyed perfectly. <coughs> these prayers that he made, these were most ardent requests that he uttered with deep sighs and manifold moans in most submissive manner to the Father. <coughs> this answers the question then, because we may ask, how can a glorious and throne Jesus know what I'm going through on planet Earth? Here, as I'm walking my everyday kind of life, going through my trials or hardships or difficulty or even sickness or disease, how can he be acquainted, being glorified and being seated at the Father's right hand? Well, the scriptures teach that he himself, as a son, learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Through his incarnation, God experienced things that he has never experienced previously. God has never experienced what it means to be obedient. Can you imagine that? Because on the throne of God, as he sits there, Everyone throughout the universe and throughout creation obeys God. God himself doesn't have to obey anyone. And now you have the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. And now God has to learn obedience. A whole new thing that the Godhead has to learn is to learn how to be obedient. We'll talk about this in a moment again. The ancient Greek word for prayers and supplications is the word hiketeria. It's spelled H-I-K-E-T-E-R-I-A. It has an interesting meaning. It means an olive branch wrapped in wool. An olive branch wrapped in wool. Now, in, in, in the Greek mythology, when the Greek worshiper is, is desperately praying... They take an olive branch, which is indicative of seeking peace. You know that when we extend an olive branch to somebody, we extend um, to them the, the ability to be reconciled. And so they have an olive branch seeking reconciliation, but it's wrapped in wool. And this is interesting because the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, provided the wool to wrap this olive branch in. This is a interesting uh, thought as we look at that um, uh, not just from a mythological point of view uh, but from a, a spiritual and biblical view how God is extending an olive branch to the human race the apostle Paul says in Romans rather in first second Corinthians chapter 5 that we have the gospel of reconciliation God having reconciled us with himself in Christ God extended an olive branch to us. It says that he was heard because of his godly fear. Jesus asked that the cup would be taken away from him. Yet the cup was not taken away. He says, nevertheless, his prayer was heard because his prayer was not to escape the Father's will, but rather to accept it. And that prayer was definitely heard it was answered he was praying and asking God to give him grace to obey the instructions that the father has given him so though Jesus was God 
and is God, yet he learned obedience. God enthroned in heaven's glory can only experience obedience, as I said earlier. And by casting off the glory, in other words, the Bible says in the book of Philippians, Jesus emptied himself of all of his glory and retained his sonship. He retained his identity as a son because in emptying himself of glory, he now was faced with a new uh, situation in that he had to learn how to practice obedience. So in the case of Jesus, he did not pass from disobedience to obedience. That's how you and I learn obedience. We are disobedient in a particular situation as a, a set of circumstances present itself and then we have to learn how to become obedient. Jesus did not learn obedience out of disobedience. He learned obedience by actually obeying God, by fulfilling the commandments that God has set before him. And he did not learn how to obey he learned what was involved in obedience. He learned the mechanics, as it were, of obedience. Jesus learned the experience of obedience. Understand this. Prior to his incarnation, he never had to obey anything except in walking in relationship with his Father. And this was a whole new part. This was the part of the sufferings of the Messiah learning obedience. The Bible, that's why the Bible says that it's through this process of suffering that he learned obedience. One thing that God, <coughs> enthroned in heaven, does not know is the experience of obedience. Because enthroned in the heavens, God obeys no one. All and everyone has to obey him. And so when the angels looked at Jesus in his incarnation, they may have marveled at the Son of God who added humility to his deity to actually live out obedience. This is an incredible thing as you think upon it in God learning obedience. Jesus in his incarnation obeyed in, in the spectacular challenges he obeyed in the ordinary things of life. He obeyed as a child, as a teenager, as a young man. He obeyed privately and he obeyed openly. He obeyed his father and he also obeyed rightful human authority. Jesus obeyed all things even to the end. He learned obedience, the Bible says, by those things which he suffered. In suffering, was, I say this, that if suffering was good enough to teach the Son of God, you and I must also learn and never despise suffering as a tool of instruction in our lives. Now the Bible never teaches that strong faith will keep a Christian from suffering. In fact, let me give you three portions of Scripture where it states that we will suffer. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 3, all followers of Christ were appointed to affliction. Can you imagine that? 
in the economy of God, we have been appointed to affliction. Acts 14.22 says that it's through many tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God. And Romans 8.17 says, our present suffering is the prelude to glorification. So suffering is a part of the life of a sincere follower of Christ. Jesus himself said that in this world you will have tribulation. You even speak of those that will abuse us or insult us or even reject us for his sake. And so as we walk with him, it's important to learn that this is a part of following Christ. Now, qualified by virtue of his calling and his compassion to be a high priest, what kind of high priest is Jesus? The next two verses, this is chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, will explain to us this calling of Christ. It says in verse 9, And having been made perfect, he became unto all them that obey him the author of eternal salvation. Named of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the author of eternal salvation. It says that he was perfected by virtue of his sufferings in the flesh, in his incarnation, and has become the author of eternal salvation. The word author comes from the Greek word aitio, spelled A-I-T-I-O, meaning literally cause, that which cause something. So in this world, some don't want Jesus to be the author or the cause of their salvation. They want to write their own book of salvation. Well, God is not interested. The Bible clearly states no man comes to the Father except through the Son. Some don't want Jesus. They don't want his authorship of salvation. And they will find in the end that it will cost them dearly. Because only Jesus can author your eternal salvation. Later, as we progress in the series, we will see how Christ is the cause of our eternal salvation when we get around chapter 7. But for now, note that he is the cause of salvation for all those who obey him. Please note that. He is the cause of salvation for all those who obey him. The question then arises, is obedience necessary for salvation? Consider these verses. I want to give you three verses of Scripture that will help you understand how important obedience is for obtaining salvation. In 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18, it says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins first at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Notice in this passage in First Peter, 
What shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? You know, as Paul the Apostle went through the nations in proclaiming the gospel, he sought to establish something amongst the people which he called the obedience to the faith. In Romans 1 verse 5 it says, Through whom we received the grace of apostleship, unto obedience of faith among all the nations for his name's sake. Paul is saying that my traveling into the nations in proclaiming Christ is to bring about the obedience of the faith among the nations. Then Peter later on writes in, in verse 22 of 1 Peter 1, he says, seeing you have purified your souls in your obedience to the truth. Isn't that incredible? When we obey the truth, our souls are being purified. Seeing you have purified your souls in your obedience to the truth unto unfeigned love of the brethren, love one another from the heart fervently. Now, if obedience is necessary for salvation, are we then saved by works? This is a question I've asked in the past. Are we saved by works? The works referenced here are not meritorious works. In other words, the kind of works that you do to earn your salvation. No, we are not talking about works to earn your salvation but they are the works of God. Remember Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me, lest it become night and no one can work. So what is he speaking of? I believe that he is speaking about, and, and maybe if we look at John chapter 6, verse 28, let Jesus explain what he means by the work of God. They said therefore unto him, what must we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. So there you understand, when he speaks of the work of God, he is not speaking of meritorious works. In fact, the Bible says, Our works are like filthy rags before God. Those are works that we do to obtain self-righteousness. Because we know in the scriptures it's clear, our righteousness is not of ourselves, but it's of Christ. But there is an element of work that is necessary. And here Jesus explained that works that is needed here is that we, that we would have, that we would believe on him whom he sent. In other words, to direct your faith towards the one whom God has sent. Also, repentance and baptism are likewise works of God that we must obey in order to obtain salvation. Remember in, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when Peter was speaking and, and, and these individuals asked him, what must we do to be saved? In other words, what action are we to take? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, unto the remission of sins, and he shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there, 
you see that salvation by grace through faith does not preclude the necessity of obedience to Christ and his gospel. You will remember in the teaching that faith without works is dead. I set out to explain to you that having a faith in God that does not produce fruits of righteousness is a faith that is dead because it doesn't have works. Our faith in God that is um, in Christ must bring about a change of lifestyle, a change of functioning in the earth that it will produce fruit that will bring God glory. So your obedience to Christ is a work of grace that proves publicly what you believe privately. Your works or fruit, as the Bible speaks of, on the tree is evidence that that which you believe privately is displayed publicly in your lifestyle. Now let's get back to the passage in Hebrews 5. Because according to the order of Melchizedek, this is in verse 10. Here we learn, and we begin to see something about the distinct nature of Christ's priesthood. Because in Psalm 110 verse 4, there is a prophecy about Christ and the Messiah. It says that he would be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek's very interesting person uh, that we would study at some point in the future. Because the Bible says Melchizedek, this person, had no beginning and no ending. No mother, no father. This is an incredible person walked on the earth, you may remember that it's this person when Abraham set out to save Lot and brought him back and, and his whole army and everybody else, he met a person, the king of Salem, and he offered him bread and wine. And, and uh, king of Salem offered Abraham bread and wine and Abraham offered him a tithe. This is a person in the, in the order, in the configuration of Melchizedek, a priest on the earth representing God. So his priesthood, therefore, is different from the Aaronic and the Levitical priesthood because uh, it's superior. It doesn't have a beginning and an ending because it's an eternal priesthood. Uh, and so uh, this is the very difference here between the two priesthoods, because the superiority of Christ's priesthood over Aaron's uh, is one that is an eternal priesthood. There's never a time in the future when he would not make intercession for us, of course, until the culmination of the fullness of the kingdom. Then uh, his role would, would change when everyone that is to believe on God in Christ is in the fold, the kingdom is calm. It's set up upon the earth. God has moved his throne back to earth. The function of Christ then will change. But until then, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. When we get to chapter 7, we will discuss that in greater detail. For now, the author, when you get into verse 11 of chapter 5, you will see the author has become distracted. And what is distracting him? He's distracted because he realizes that his audience 
are the recipients of his letter, they are not spiritually mature enough to disclose or discuss the matters pertaining to the priesthood of Christ. And now he has to deviate here and begin to address the issue of spiritual immaturity. This continues until chapter 6, verse 20. And we will deal with this extensively in the weeks to come. But for the moment, the author has established Christ's qualifications as a priest, which are the two things, divinely appointed, and secondly, his ability to be sympathetic because of his own sufferings. Jesus makes a suitable high priest, and he's the author of our eternal salvation. But don't forget, the Bible says he's the author of salvation to all who obey him. He is the author of salvation to all who obey him. So may you fully access the grace to come boldly to the throne of God and to intimately know Christ as the high priest of your life. My prayer is that we would really lay hold of this principle of Christ being our high priest and the one who's making intercession for us, the one who's carrying our confessions before the throne of God. May we come to know him intimately as we converse with him. As I said to you last week, learn to speak with the Lord about any and everything. The Bible says, cast your cares upon him because he careth for you. I pray that even in this time of turmoil and confusion that is in the world, um, beyond can you imagine, we are in the midst of a pandemic, and on top of that, uh, you have all of this lootings going on in the streets. You have the confusion amongst the politicians, the one trying to de defend his position, the other one, you know, being incarcerated, our former president. There we are in a chaotic state in this country. And my prayer is that in the midst of this, you will not allow this to cause your soul to pull back. Remember the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, if my son, if your soul pulls back, I will not be pleased with you. So my prayer is that you will press into the presence of God and in the midst of this confusion, find the peace of God in the presence of God and bring that peace into your life and into your world and into your family and into your home and into your world and administrate that grace that God has given you. May the grace of God be with you and upon you. And may the hand of the Lord be upon you in his making so that indeed you may arise and demonstrate the grace of God in a wonderful and powerful way as his son. Next week we begin to talk about marks of spiritual immaturity. And that's important that we look at that, marks of spiritual immaturity, because we need to look at what are the things that identify us as immature, so that we may indeed transcend those things and give ourselves to the Lord to walk with him in maturity. The grace of God be with you in all of these things, and we thank God 
fallback. Amen.